You probably know some famous love songs, but near the top of the list is I Will Always Love You. You know what I'm talking about, right? The I, I'm singing to my wife, by the way. I will always love you. No applause, thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs> Don't answer this out loud, but this is a piece of music trivia question. Who wrote that song? I said, don't answer this out loud. What part of don't answer this out loud? You ruined my whole joke. Well, put your hand in there if you would have said Whitney Houston, right? Whitney Houston is the one that made the song famous. She recorded it for the movie The Bodyguard in 1992. But who actually wrote it? Dolly Parton. I didn't know that until a couple weeks ago. Anyways, so Dolly Parton. But did you know that she didn't write it about a romantic relationship? She wrote it about a professional relationship. She knew it was time to break up with her mentor and onstage duet partner, Porter Wagner, but she didn't know how. And she kept having conversation after conversation after conversation because she wanted to break out on her own. And you understand Porter's perspective, right? He was making a lot of money from Miss Parton, so he didn't want her to go anywhere. And all these conversations fell flat. Listen to this interview. Uh, this is Dolly in 2011. There was a lot of grief and heartache there, and he just wasn't listening to my reasoning for going, and I thought, why don't you do what you do best? Why don't you just write this song? So I went home, and out of a very emotional place in me at the time, I wrote the song, I'll Always Love You. And if you read the lyrics, which I did after I read this, it made so much more sense. So maybe tonight you'll Google the lyrics, I will always love you. So no, Fritz says no. (laughs) That was right on cue. And once again, Fritz, I do recognize your voice from the stage. The next day, she walked into the studio, she grabbed her guitar, and she performed the song for Porter. Here's what he said. Well, if you feel that strong about it, just go on, providing that I get to, re- that I get to produce that record because that's the best song you've ever written. Oh, really cute, right? Until you realize six years later, Porter sues Dolly for $3 million for a breach of contract. And then the two of them didn't talk for decades. But then she sang the song on his deathbed uh, in 2004, and the story still has a happy ending. Love songs. Happy ending, that probably wasn't the right way to put that. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for laughing at that. It's making me uncomfortable. We all know the genre of love songs, don't we? And you probably have your favorite ones. So do I. But did you know that the Bible also has the genre of love song in it? That's our text tonight, Isaiah 5. Turn there. If you have your Bible. And at a casual reading, Isaiah 5, it, it just kind of looks like a love song. But when you dig in, you realize that it's a lot deeper than that. It's a love song turned parable, turned courtroom drama that has implications for you and I that we would never pick up at our first reading. I wish that we were all experts in the original language in Hebrew because this is a beautiful poem. Scholars look at this and say this is masterfully put together. It's beautiful. There's parallelism and assonance. It reads like a poem. Bobby, maybe you should put this to to tune, make this into a young adult love song. But when you read it, you realize that's maybe not a good idea. Here's what the text says, Isaiah 5, verse 1. 
Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved, beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Let's pause there. Look at the first verse, first line. Let me sing for my beloved. This is Isaiah talking. He's the author of the book of Isaiah, and he's writing a love song for his beloved. And in this case, his beloved is Yahweh. His beloved is God. And he's writing a love song about God and his vineyard. And he paints a picture, paints a picture of, picture of a, a farmer and his vineyard, which for you and I doesn't make a lot of sense because we live in Wisconsin. Vineyards don't grow very well in Wisconsin. If he would have used a dairy cow analogy, a corn analogy, it would have made sense, but he didn't. So we've got to understand a little bit background of what a vineyard is and how a vineyard works. For a vineyard to grow, there's some conditions that need to be met. It needs to be sunny. We're not, we don't have that much sun here. It's got to be a little warmer than here. And the soil actually can't be as fertile as we have here. The soil has to be rocky or sandy. It has to drain really well, which if you've ever seen pictures of a vineyard, most of the time they're built on a hill, which is actually uh, conducive for the growing of the vine. But look what he says. My beloved had a vineyard, and he planted it on a very fertile hill. The exact right conditions for a vineyard to grow. He planted it on a hill. And then it says he dug it and he cleared it of stones. <laughs> Remember where Israel was, right? This is in Palestine. This is in the Middle East. If you've ever been to Israel, it's rocky. There's limestone everywhere. So if you're going to build a vineyard, yes, the soil works, but you've got a lot of work to do. You've got to clear the whole hill of stones. And there was no easy way to do this. They, they didn't have giant excavators then. The farmer would take his farmer shovel, dig out the stones, carry them by hand, and then put them on the perimeter of the vineyard. And then what he'd do with those rocks is he'd build a wall, a wall that kept intruders out, protected his farm, his vineyard. And then on top of the rock wall, built of all this limestone, there would be this thorny hedge that would add extra protection to the vineyard. This would be long, back-breaking work, no shortcut to take the stones out of the hill. And then it says he planted it with choice vines. This is not a goodwill variety grapeseed here. This is the best technology, the best vines that he could find. And then it says he built a watchtower in the midst of it. Now, if you're going to go above and beyond, if you're going to build the, the best imaginable vineyard, you're going to take the leftover rocks that you didn't need to build the wall, and you're going to build a watchtower so that not only do you have the protection from the fence, from the, the hedge, but then you also have protection from the watchtower that you can see your entire property. You can see your entire vineyard. Only the best builders, the best farmers would build a watchtower. And then it says, he hewed out a wine vat in it. I know this doesn't come as a surprise, but they weren't making vineyards for grape juice. They were making vineyards for wine. And much to Pastor Jared's dismay, the, the wine back in this day was far more diluted than the wine is today. Some of you didn't hear Jared's joke on Saturday morning, never mind. <laughs> but here's how it would work. It made sense that they drank a lot more wine that was diluted because it served a, a biological purpose. The water wasn't clean like we have today. So if you have a little bit of alcohol in with water, then it would actually kill the bacteria. It would make it safer 
to drink. So wine was common in Isaiah's day. But wine doesn't just happen, right? You've got to prepare for it. You've got to make it. So you'd create this wine vat, which would be this hole in the ground, this place where you would stomp on the grapes to turn the mush into juice. And then there would be this trough that would connect one wine vat from the next wine vat and be downhill. And then the second vat would be this stone trough chiseled out of stone that would hold the grape juice and allow it to ferment. Just chiseling out that second vat would take days, weeks of hard labor preparing for a vineyard. He did everything he could. He did everything right. And then the farmer has to wait two years. From when you plant the vine to when it's going to yield a crop, two years. What if you were this farmer? Wouldn't you be excited? You just did everything right. You just planted the world's greatest vineyard. You're waiting for the world's greatest grapes to come out of this vineyard for two years. Imagine the excitement, the anticipation This farmer with blood, sweat, and tears creating this masterpiece on top of this fertile hill. But what does the text say? He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. I'm sorry, ESV, not a good translation. Literally translated stinking things, rotten things. These weren't wild grapes. These were rotten grapes, stinky grapes, foul grapes, good-for-nothing grapes, not even good enough for cheap wine grapes, unusable. They just needed to get thrown away. And we're left asking the question, why? (laughs) How does the perfect vineyard produce the world's worst grapes? That's the exact question Isaiah wanted his audience to ask. And then as the love song continues, Isaiah takes his microphone and he hands it to another singer. Verse three, it's not Isaiah singing anymore, God's singing. And the love song turns sour. Look at verse three. Now inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it when I looked for it to yield grapes? And why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I'll do for my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall. It shall be trampled. I'll make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I'll command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. You see what he's saying? He's asking the rhetorical question. What more was there for me to do? What else could I do for the vineyard? The answer is obvious, right? Nothing. There was nothing else the farmer could could do to set his vineyard up for success. See what Isaiah is doing. It's the same thing that the prophet Nathan did when he confronted King David about David's sin with Bathsheba. Instead of being direct, he uses a parable. He uses a a story that leaves David self-condemned. That's what Isaiah does. Let's think about his audience. His audience is the people of Judah. And what does God say in verse four? Verse three, rather. Inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. It's a courtroom drama. He's giving Judah the invitation to sit on the jury and decide who's at fault, who's guilty. 
Is it the farmer or is it the vineyard? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? It's not the farmer. The farmer did nothing wrong. The farmer did everything right. The farmer went above and beyond. It was the grapes. So what do you do with a vineyard like this? You abandon it. You burn it. You tear down the hedge and you use the rocks for something else. And then you go a step farther. You call out to the clouds and curse them so that they don't even rain on the vineyard. It's worthless. It's useless. You can almost hear the people crying out saying, burn it, destroy it, abandon it. It's useless. It's worthless. Look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You see what he did, right? He leaves Judah self-condemned. If they condemned the vineyard, then they condemned themselves. Because Israel is God's vineyard. Think of all the things that God did for his people. He rescued them miraculously from slavery in Egypt. He raises up a man, Moses, to lead them to the promised land. And as they're wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, he miraculously provides food for 40 years. He drives out the enemies before them and in, the, in their new home. And he stops the, the water at the Jordan River, so they can cross it. And he tears down the walls at Jericho. And then on Mount Sinai, he gives Moses the, the law, the covenant, so that the people know what it means to have a relationship with him. He gave them blessing. He gave them prosperity. He gave them anything that they could ever need. But most of all, he gave them himself. He desired to have a relationship with his people. Not because they did anything to deserve it, but because he chose them because he loved them. They were his vineyard. He did everything right. But what did the people do? They spit in his face. They abandoned him. They ran after other gods. They pursued idolatry. They were stinky, foul grapes. Did you notice the two sins that Isaiah highlights? He says, God expected justice, but he found bloodshed. God expected righteousness, obedience, but he heard an outcry, a reference to the cry of the oppressed. Now, these are not the only two sins that the people of Israel committed. You look at verse 8, there's a long list of woes that include many other sins like drunkenness and carelessness and deception and pride and covetousness. But this passage reminds me of something, that God is very concerned about justice. That was one of the top tier reasons that his people stood condemned. God hates when power is abused for selfish gain. God hates when one person crushes another, takes advantage of another for personal gain. God hates when his people turn their eyes on blatant injustice instead of doing something to intervene. God hates oppression of the weak, the destitute, the marginalized. One of the reasons is that the people stood condemned is that they refused to take care of the poor in their midst. This passage is a reminder of God's care, his concern, even his bias towards the poor, towards the marginalized, towards the outcast. God hates when his people neglect the marginalized. 
and their cry for help rose to God's ears. A couple weeks ago, when we started our series in Isaiah, I mentioned that this prophet is, is like the top dog prophet of the Old Testament. It's quoted more by New Testament writers, alluded to more by New Testament writers than any other prophet. And our text tonight is a reminder that God's word is inspired. It's exactly what God wants, to, wants it to say. It's inerrant, without error in the original manuscripts. And we see that God's word, even though it's written by many human authors over thousands of years, has one divine author. And peace connects to peace, motif connects to motif, and we can sometimes see a thread that weaves throughout Scripture. And we see that in our text tonight, that there's two texts in the New Testament that bring Isaiah's love song full circle. And the first is in Mark chapter 12. So if you're in Isaiah 5, you can flip over to the New Testament and look at Mark chapter 12. Remember that Jesus, Jesus' audience... They knew Isaiah really well. Probably better, certainly better than you and I know the book of Isaiah. Look at Mark chapter 12, verse 1. Keep Isaiah 5 in the back of your mind as I'm just reading this first verse. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in a parable. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. And dug a pit for the wine press, built a tower, leased it to tenants, and went to another country. Come on, doesn't that sound familiar? This is like exactly what Isaiah just said. He sets up the parable in the same exact way as Isaiah did. And Jesus' audience in this text, it's the religious leaders, it's the Pharisees, it's the Jews. These are the ones that knew the Old Testament the best. When Jesus starts this parable, of course they're going back to Isaiah 5. Of course they're thinking, yeah, this This sounds familiar. This sounds like Isaiah, scroll number five. But Isaiah and Jesus have two different purposes as they employ some of the same imagery. The story takes a different turn, starting in verse two. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, He sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent them another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. But he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Inheritance will be ours. They took him and they killed him. They threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Hmm. You see the picture, right? The owner, the farmer, he does everything right. Builds the vineyard perfectly and he moves away to another state. He finds some tenants. He's going to lease out the vineyard. And then... When the vineyard yields its fruit, he's going to come back and take his share of the fruit, the fruit of his work, of his labor. It's his vineyard. So he starts to send servant after servant to get his fruit, and it doesn't work. The tenants beat some up, and they kill some others. And then he thinks, 
I'll just send my son. They'll respect my son. They'll listen to my son. They won't kill my son. But I have jealousy. They look at the heir to the estate and say, well, if we kill him, then we can get with what's rightfully his. This is a parable. It's not a true story. But a parable is an earthly story with the heavenly meaning. You understand the picture, right? That the vineyard is still Israel, isn't it? And who are the tenants? Still religious leaders. It's Jesus' opponents. It's the people who have been responsible for the spiritual shepherding of God's people. And God sends servant after servant who are the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, Elisha, the list could go on and on. Some they beat, some they murder, like Isaiah, who was probably killed by King Manasseh. But then what does God do? He sends his son. And here Jesus predicts his own death by the hand of the religious leaders who killed him outside of town, threw him in a stranger's tomb because they were jealous and they wanted his inheritance. It's a crazy connection between the two. I love Mark 12 because it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. But there's one thing that Mark 12 teaches me that rises above the rest. God doesn't give up on his people. God did everything for Israel. God had every right to abandon them, every right to trample them underfoot, every right to tear down his vineyard and build somewhere else. But what did he do? He sent his son because he loved his vineyard. It's not just Israel that's the vineyard. It's you and me. My sin and your sin separates us from a holy God. It's not just Israel, that was a stinky, foul grape. It's you and me. And God's given us everything that we could ever need, but still on our own, our, our heart, our flesh is directed not towards God, but to ourself, not toward God, but to the world, not toward God, but toward sin. None of us on our own are ever born in a capacity where we can choose God. God had every right to abandon us, but he didn't. He sent his son who died for you and he died for me. It was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. I was the one that put Jesus to death. God never gives up on his people. And some of you need to hear that tonight.
Some of you walked in the door not believing in Jesus as your Savior. Some of you have never cried out to him and said, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I need forgiveness. God wants to save you, but you have to let him. Cry out to Jesus. Trust him as your Savior. Ask for forgiveness, belief. But there's others of you that, that know him. You have that relationship with him. But you still feel like God's abandoned you. You feel like you've done the same thing, that same sin, over and over and over and over again. You think, man, when's God just going to kick me out of the family already? I'm a bad son. He hasn't abandoned you either. He wants to bring you home, but you have to let him. You've got to repent. You've got to turn toward him. He has not given up on you. I love the connection between Isaiah 5 and Mark 12, but it's still not my favorite connection in the New Testament. Flip over to John 15. Oh, this is so cool. I, I hope this clicks tonight. I pray this clicks tonight. Look at John 15, verse 1. Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is like his last talk, his deep heart-to-heart with his guys. Verse 1. I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. So the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you see the connection? Think about Isaiah 5 for a moment. Who is the farmer in Isaiah 5? God is, right? In Isaiah 5, who's the, the vineyard? Who's the vine? It's Israel. Do you see how Jesus changes the analogy in John 15? My father's the vine dresser, but who's the vine? It's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. Jesus obeyed where Israel disobeyed. He's the new Israel. He's the perfect Israel. He's the fulfillment of every single Old Testament promise about himself. Jesus is looking back to Isaiah 5, saying, guys, where you failed, I succeeded. Jesus obeyed every aspect of God's law and thought and attitude and action, yet was completely without sin, thus qualifying himself to be the just substitute for our sins so that when he died in our place, it was the perfect, it was the righteous dying for the unrighteous, for you and I. Jesus is the new Israel. John 15, it gives us a glimpse into the beauty of the gospel demonstrated through the new covenant because through Jesus, literally everything changed. We're not trying to be the vine. Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. Jesus succeeded where we failed. And if we remain in Christ, if we abide in Christ and he in us, then we're gonna bear much fruit. 
the distinction is huge. We are guaranteed to bear much fruit if we're connected to the vine. We are guaranteed to bear fruit if we abide. But apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And if we want to bear fruit, we've got to stay connected to Christ. The word abide, it's a little archaic. I don't know the last time I heard anyone use the word abide outside the walls of a church. Maybe you've heard me use this word picture before. Reminds me of a turtle and a turtle's relationship with its shell. A turtle is designed to live in its shell. It finds protection in its shell. If a turtle tries to leave its shell, it's not going to survive for very long. A turtle abides in its shell. We abide in Christ. We find protection in Christ. We find our best life in Christ. Not our easiest life, our best life in Christ. That when we are connected to Jesus, when we abide with Christ, that's where you and I are meant to be. It's our big idea tonight, is stay connected to Christ, the true vine. Some of you have been waiting a long time just to write that down. We're not passive in the fruit-bearing process, but we're certainly not alone if we want to bear fruit, what does Jesus tell us to do? To stay connected to him, to abide in him. Instead of focusing on the fruit, we focus on Jesus. It doesn't work very well to staple fruit onto a fruit tree, does it? But sometimes we do the same thing when we focus on the symptom, when we focus on the fruit. But Jesus tells us to do the opposite. But think for a moment. Think about the fruit. What does it mean? What does it mean to bear fruit? Well, think of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We could just take the last one off. I'd be fine with that. No, the fruit of the Spirit. You notice that it's fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit. It's not nine fruit. It's one fruit with nine characteristics. So it doesn't work to say, oh, I've got a ton of love, but I have no patience. Oh, I've got a ton of faithfulness, but I've got no self-control. I'm I'm, I'm two for eight. I'm doing good or two for nine. No, it's one fruit. Now, certainly there's going to be weaker areas of that piece of fruit in each of our lives, but we can't have one without the other. We need all of them. But if you look at the fruit of the Spirit and you take a good hard look in the mirror, how are we doing? How are you doing? Do you see evidence for the fruit of the Spirit in your life? If you ask your best friend or spouse or accountability partner, how am I doing? Where do you see the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Where do you see room for growth? What do you think they'd say? Now, if we look in the mirror, I hope that we all see deficiencies. None of us have arrived. <laughs> None of us are perfect. So when we see that, what do we do? Well, I know what we are tempted to do. I know what our first reaction is. We look at the fruit. We're a symptom-driven society where you have a sinus infection, I don't care what the underlying cause is, just take an antibiotic and you'll be fine. We do the same thing in our spiritual life. Instead of looking at the fruit, Jesus tells us to look the other direction. Instead of looking down the branch at the fruit, we look up the branch at our connection to Christ. If we want to bear fruit, we've got to be connected to Christ. So how do we do that? You know what I'm going to say. 
It's predictable, but it's the right answer. We've got to read the Bible, and we've got to pray. That is the quintessential Sunday school answer, but it's a good one. If we want to stay connected to Christ, we've got to be in his word, and we've got to be praying. Church signs can provide the best tweets. I saw this a couple weeks ago. Is prayer your spare tire or steering wheel? Heard that before? I really liked that. You see the picture, don't you? Do we just pray when we need something once every couple days, couple weeks, couple months? Or is prayer the regular rhythm of our life, continually having a conversation with God? There's room for all of us to grow in our prayer. How about scripture? Is that something we built into the rhythm of our day? Spending time reading God's word, soaking in it, meditating on it, memorizing it. At our winter conference, Jim and Susan Meshley taught a great session on just some practical tools and how you can get into God's word. They've got a, a little card. I don't even know what size it is. It's like three by five, something like that. Just with some great study questions. I'm sure they would love to give one to you if you'd ask. They're just sitting over here by the coffee. But we've all, we all have a need to get in God's word. How are you doing? Are you spending time in scripture? Just like God's provided the vineyard, everything that it needed to grow. You realize God has given us everything we need. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us everything that we need for life and godliness. Think of the things he's given to us. He's given us scripture. You realize that we have access to Hundreds of translations of God's word in the palm of our hand. Reading the Bible has never been easier for anyone in the history of the world. And for somebody that doesn't like to read, now that's not even a good excuse because you can listen to it. It's incredible. (laughs) But how often do we open up our phone, go to TikTok, ESPN, and Instagram, Snapchat, and be real? before we open God's word. Are you abiding in TikTok? Are you abiding in Jesus? Are you abiding in Instagram? Are you abiding in God's word? He's given us his word. What else he's given you? He's given you Christian community. You realize, just because you're here tonight, you have access to unparalleled Christian community that other people around our state wish they had? How do I know that? Because I have pastors and church leaders calling me, asking for some secret sauce, asking for, like, how is, how is young adults happening? And I kind of feel bad when I say, I don't have a secret sauce. What's happening here on Monday night is not because of one leader. It is not because of a special ministry formula. It's because God's doing something. And not one of us can take the credit for that. But that means what we have here is special. Are you taking advantage of it? Or are you taking it for granted? We have incredible leaders that are ready to invest in your life. Are you letting them speak into your life? Are you pretending like everything's okay, like you have everything figured out? Trust me, we want to help you make, we want to help you avoid the same mistakes that we made if you'll let us. You have access to unparalleled Christian community. Are you taking advantage of it? Or are you taking it for granted? You know what else God has given you? You're not going to like this, but it's true. 
God's given you time. Most of you aren't married, and almost all of you don't have kids. You have time. And if you don't feel like you have time, talk to me in another decade, and you'll repent. <laughs> and if you're busy, you realize whose fault that is, right? It's yours. The question is, what are you filling your time with? Are you making a priority to fulfill your 10 favorite hobbies? Or is God a priority? Is his word a priority? Is serving a church a priority? Is being connected to community a priority? How are you using your time? God's given you time. You have more time now than you might have in another three decades. How are you using it? But you realize the best gift that God's given you, right? It's himself. That if you know Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who's living, dwelling, residing inside of you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. You were bought at a price, 1 Corinthians 6. God's given us everything we need for a life of godliness because of the power of the indwelt Holy Spirit. If you know Christ, you have in you what Old Testament believers dreamt about but never had. God tabernacking dwelling in you. He's given you everything you need to live a life of godliness. Here's the deal. <laughs> some of you are looking at your life and you're asking some big questions. You're asking, why can't I overcome this same temptation? I just keep giving in over and over again. I keep trying and you're asking, hmm, why have I been extra irritable lately? It just doesn't make sense. Or why can't I find motivation? Or why can't I find joy? Why can't I find satisfaction? Why can't I find life direction? And you're looking the wrong direction. You're looking down the branch instead of up the branch. Is there a chance that you're not connected to Jesus? It's the most important relationship in our life. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't be the recipient of the Isaiah 5 love song. If you know Jesus, you've been adopted into his family. God's given you everything that you could imagine. He's set you up for spiritual success. He's given you everything you need to run the race with endurance, everything that you need to live a godly life. But to whom much has been given, much is expected. Let's be a young adult family that stays connected to Christ, our true vine. Let's pray. Father, this is one of those texts that we look at and just say, wow, we love your word. It is such a gift to us to know you and to know how you want us to live as your people. We worship you for not giving up on us, for not abandoning us when you had every right but you didn't. You sent your son to die in our place so that we could know you, so that we could have a relationship with you. If there's anybody here tonight that doesn't have that relationship with Jesus, may today be the day when they say yes. They cry out to you and say, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I need Jesus. I believe that he's my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me. I'm ready to follow you.
And for those here tonight that might know you but might feel abandoned by you because of the barriers they've built up in their own life because they haven't been connecting, may today be a turning point, a, a day to drive the stake in the ground and say, I'm connected to Jesus. As we take some time to dialogue in our small groups tonight, may it be helpful for us to take your word, apply it to our life, so that we're not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. That we don't allow your word to go in one ear and out the other, but we allow it to change and transform us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.